Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Congressman John Lewis has dedicated his life to the cause of justice. Born in the Jim Crow South, he knew racial violence long before becoming a leader of the civil rights movement. John Lewis grew up as a young black man in the time of Emmett Till. The dangers were not esoteric. They were not imagined. They were quite real. And so when his mother said, don't get in the way, don't get in trouble, she really meant stay alive. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, I'll speak with the director and producer of John Lewis, Good Trouble, a new documentary that arrives right on time. I think when I started making the film, I thought we're going to have to convince people that protest is still necessary. Plus, the push to diversify the film industry has been uphill for decades. We'll hear from the head of Anacaona Pictures, an Atlanta production company focused on amplifying underrepresented voices. All coming up, first, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. John Lewis has gotten into a lot of trouble in his life. The now 17-term House representative from Atlanta has been arrested 45 times, five as a U.S. congressman. One of the original Freedom Riders, his skull was fractured by a blow from a Klansman in 1961. He was badly beaten after crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on Bloody Sunday and again leading the march from Selma to Montgomery. While those historic battles for civil rights are behind us, the fight for racial justice is erupting again on the streets with a new urgency. And the 80-year-old John Lewis is not backing down. But my philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, yeah. not just, yeah. say something, yeah. do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. That is a clip from John Lewis' Good Trouble. The new documentary from director Don Porter was released in theaters and on demand on July 3rd. It contains interviews with Lewis himself, along with a lot of big-name players in civil rights and politics, and plenty of modern and archival footage to tell the narrative. Diving into well-known stories about Georgia's longtime congressman, as well as some lesser-known that tell us who he is. And Don Porter, who is also a producer of the film, joins me now on Zoom. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Also, Erica Alexander, a producer on the film. Erica, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Virginia. It's a pleasure. Don, the film contains a lot of historical footage, but also lots of contemporary scenes in his office, his home on the road. You must have worked pretty closely to get that kind of access. When did you start working on this project? We began uh, working with the congressman before the 2018 midterm elections. And the idea was always to see, you know, what is the work of an active con member of Congress and how, how do you get work done from the inside? I mean, most people are familiar with Congressman Lewis's history of activism, as you've just described, but I wanted to also shine a light on what he's doing today um, and what our elected leaders are doing today. Many people have seen the highlight reel of John Lewis's life, but this film, I think, gives us insight beyond that. And he didn't put any limits or stipulations on your filming, so it's pretty intimate. And we get this sense of his relationships, his sense of humor, and, and his childhood growing up on a farm in Troy, Alabama, with a lot of early passion and drive remembered here by some of his siblings from the film. 
everybody knew John wasn't gonna work. My oldest brother, Adolph, would tell mom, I do his share. So if he went on to school, Adolph was gonna work for two or three men anyway. So he told dad, let him go, let him go. His sisters also said in high school he wore a suit to school every day, carried his Bible, and he would preach to the family chickens. Erica, what does hearing these stories add to our understanding of John Lewis, the man who becomes this great civil rights leader? Well, I think that that's what I loved the most, at least for me. Uh, he had a big family, and um, we got a chance to meet them. And um, I think it reveals a uh, little more about him, uh, his manner, his very calm and self-assured self. They actually told stories about him being stingy <laughs> with food <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, teased him. And that was wonderful, too. But you also saw the great respect and dignity they had. And I love that. I love revealing that and um, seeing that what we call John Lewis is something that's inherent in his DNA. Don, how about you? What do these stories of Lewis's life growing up in Alabama add to your sense of him? I think that there, when you're there with him in Alabama, the land that he refers to so often, you have a sense uh, that, that Congressman Lewis has something that many of us uh, value, which is he has such a strong family and he is so grounded in the strength of his family. His family was was really always there for him, although I think that they were terrified. You know, it's important to remember John Lewis grew up as a young black man in the time of Emmett Till. The dangers were not esoteric. They were not imagined. They were quite real. And so when his mother said, don't get in the way, don't get in trouble, she really meant stay alive. And so he made a conscious choice that he didn't want to live uh, the way that was foretold for him. He wanted to carve out a different life, not just for himself, but for, for other Black people. And Lewis famously went on to work alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and became one of the leaders of the civil rights movement. Good Trouble tells the story of how he met and started working with Dr. King. Who, who wants to pick that story up? Yeah, I can I can speak to that. Um, you know, many people have said to me, "What what made him do the things that that he's done over the years?" And I think for him, the answer is really straightforward. He really hated the discrimination he saw. He hated segregation and the degradation that it brought. So, as a teenager. He was really inspired by the women of the civil rights movement. He was inspired by Rosa Parks and by the other women of the Montgomery boy bus boycott. And so when he saw an opportunity to challenge something that he thought was unjust, he leapt at that chance. And that, that first chance was writing a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and asking for his help in uh, applying to Troy University, which, which then was segregated. That's Don Porter. She is director and producer and also producer Erica Alexander is with us. We're talking about their new film, John Lewis, Good Trouble. It is in theaters. I myself saw it at the Plaza Theater's drive-in last weekend, socially distanced. It is also available on demand on Google Play, Apple TV, and Amazon Prime. Well, and we see the danger, certainly the highlights 
of the nonviolence resistance movement, which which defined the civil rights movement of the 60s through voter drives, marches, lunch counters, sit-ins. But there was great danger. And you do show footage from a course teaching the concepts of nonviolence. First, how did you find this? And and other historical fo- footage, some of which the congressman had never seen. I worked with a really um, exceptional archival producer, and we had just finished doing a four-part series for Netflix about Bobby Kennedy. And so we had an extensive deep dive into the archive. Um, And it was really important to me to not just show the footage that we are all familiar with, but to kind of back us up in time. What were those moments in the days and weeks and months and years even before John Lewis stepped foot on that bridge. Because I think that that tells a very uh, important American and Southern story about the strategy and planning that was needed in order to create lasting change. John Lewis and those other activists worked for many months and years to get to those moments uh, that would become part of our iconic national history. Well, there are images of Lewis, certainly in the line of fire, getting beaten and facing it with such bravery, I think, and dignity. Here he is talking about the movement and facing that kind of opposition. I lost all sense of fear, really. When you lose the sense of fear, you're free. Too many people live in fear during those days. Mm, It is so gripping to hear that. And one of the things that you do in the film is that you put him in a studio in the round with showing these film and these footage that, you know, many of us have seen, as we said, some never seen, and watch him react to it. Uh, Tell me about that decision, because it really is so moving to see. You know, um, uh, thank you for that. Um, You know, we were filming with the congressman. He leads a pilgrimage, he calls it, back to to Alabama each year where he takes a congressional delegation and other visitors and guests. And part of that pilgrimage was a trip to Brian Stevenson's remarkable civil rights uh, museum in Alabama. And while we were there, I watched the congressman watching an exhibit about himself and while he did that, he, he kept saying, um, I can't believe that's me. And so I had the idea to then create all of these short little films just of archive and put them together and show him. So we rented a theater, we constructed very large screens. Um, Part of your job as a director is figuring out what is the environment that my subject needs in order to go back in time and give me the detail about these important times. And so with the Congressman, I wanted him to tell us stories that we hadn't heard before. But I also think there's a moment in the film where he says he's seeing footage that he'd never seen before. And I think he's certainly speaking about particular moments, but I also think he's talking about the totality of it. I think that seeing all of these iconic moments from Selma Bridge to Freedom Rides to speaking at the March on Washington to being there when President Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act. I mean, he was there uh, when that act was signed and seeing your life you know, laid out before you that way. When I showed him the film this uh, past February, he kept saying, it's so powerful, it's so powerful, as if he's still removed from it a bit. And I said, Congressman, your life is powerful. Yes, your life is powerful. 
there are interviews with many other people observing Congressman Lewis. Erica, as a producer, what was it like to hear that the scope of these accounts of how he's viewed both as a public figure and as a man? I think it's really amazing how many participants and friends and colleagues that know him best that came out to speak and uh, bear witness to about this man. And uh, Dawn says it a lot, but what you see is what you get. He's a good man and he does good for goodness sake. And um, he certainly has a great and strong conviction and he's determined. And I love the most beautiful lines. Representative Clyburn said, he's one of the bravest people I've ever met. Now, that's a heavy thing from a brother like that because we'd all think that they're all pretty brave. And so there they are. And uh, they're talking about this man, this quiet, calm man who's a pillar and they depend on that and they can because he's um, he's proved his uh, medal over time. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who is also one of your guests, you have some very, um, you know, Elijah Cummings, Bill Clinton, uh, all the squad, Rashida Tlaib, uh, almost all the squad, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley. So how did you, you know, there must be a parade of people who want to talk about John Lewis. How did you decide who were going to be the people who spoke? Um, There was a parade. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we easily could have uh, constructed a film that was just uh, people who wanted to speak. But I I thought in the end that uh, what I was really interested in is, is the squad, is the young leaders who are going to take us all into the future and how uh, you know, they responded to Congressman Lewis. I mean, I, you know, I think we're at a political moment where there is is quite a bit of debate about what is the right path forward and how activists do we have to be. Um, and so when John Lewis speaks to, you know, a representative Ocasio-Cortez, he speaks with the knowledge and the history of someone who was once the activist outsider. So I, I think he his words had a different resonance for the squad. I think he identifies with them in many ways, but I think he also wants them to be successful as legislators. They're no longer the outsiders, and so they have to work for change from within. So that was the, the scope of their conversations. But then also, as Erica mentioned, I felt like it was really important to hear from some of his contemporaries. I mean, these are people who marched with him, who fought alongside of him. And it did kind of, you know, give us a chill to hear Representative Clyburn, who is the majority whip, say this is the bravest person he knows, to also say he was never as nonviolent as Congressman Lewis, um, and to recognize and appreciate what nonviolence contributed uh, to a movement for change. All right, we got to get to a quick break. We're talking about the new documentary film, John Lewis, Good Trouble, which is streaming just about everywhere. My guests are director and producer Don Porter and producer Erica Alexander. They're both going to be part of the Atlanta Press Club's Newsmaker event. That's an online webinar open to the public, hosted by CBS 46's Karen Greer on Tuesday, July 14th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We'll put a link to the event details at gpbnews.org. And in the background, a singer who is featured in the film. This is Betty May Fikes, also known as the voice of Selma, with her recording of Up Above My Head. We'll be back with more of this conversation when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott.
CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. John Lewis has served as a U.S. representative for Georgia's 5th Congressional District since 1987. He's now in his 17th term. Lewis is beloved for his passionate work in the civil rights movement and racial justice on the Hill, but is also known for his wisdom, his joyful spirit, and thanks to a 2014 viral video of the congressman dancing to Pharrell's happy, his groove. The new film documents and celebrates Lewis and his legacy. It's called John Lewis, Good Trouble. And today I'm speaking with the film's director and producer, Don Porter, and also producer, Erica Alexander. But let's jump back into our conversation and pick up on the point you were talking about John Lewis's influence on the younger members of Congress, especially the squad. Here is Ayanna Presley, the Massachusetts representative, talking about advice from John Lewis. And I remember uh, myself and some of my other freshman colleagues wanting to um, yell out from the side, shame on you. And um, Congressman Lewis said, that's not how we do this. And I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Those questions about the right strategy or the right way to approach change are very much with us today. Back in the civil rights era, you had people like NAACP lawyer Thurgood Marshall, who was later a Supreme Court justice, he advocated for challenging white supremacy through the courts. What did he suggest and how did John Lewis respond? Yeah, you know, it's important to remember that John Lewis was part of the radical, you know, young wing of the civil rights movement. And the NAACP at the time had followed a very deliberate, slow engagement course with Thurgood Marshall as its lead. Um, Justice Marshall, of course, had been the lead architect of Brown versus Board of Education, desegregating Southern schools. His feeling was by engage by integrating the military, by integrating places of social interaction, that discrimination would disappear. And Marshall really believed that. So he believed in the way of the courts, a very genteel, deliberate, uh, intellectual strategy. And Lewis came along and along with a number of the very young people, the teenagers, you know, Lewis was 19 when he worked to integrate the the Nashville sit-ins and they wanted direct action. So, you know, if you analogize it to today, it's just as the squad and maybe even Black Lives Matter is saying, we need a more urgent interpretation. We need a more urgent response. So, you know, it's it's interesting now, Lewis is the congressman urging, you know, legislation and lasting change, but then he was the young firebrand. Um, and if you listen to his speech at the March on Washington, you hear him say, we are going to take to the streets and we will continue to speak up and speak out and uh, demand change. We are not going to wait any longer. He was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington, one of the big six leaders involved in organizing it. For his speech at the March on Washington, John Lewis was pressured pretty hard to change a line in the speech referring to marching to Atlanta like Sherman to make it less inflammatory. What does that indicate the both the writing of the line and the willingness to take it back 
And I'm so glad you asked about that because that was, uh, that occurred very early in his career. You know, imagine being in your twenties, you're about to address, you know, the largest audience ever on the steps of the, of the Washington monument. And president Kennedy was incredibly nervous about this speech. He initially opposed it. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety. And so the kind of deans of the civil rights movement, the leaders of, you know, the NAACP reviewed Lewis's remarks really carefully and they asked him to remove this line about marching like Sherman into the streets. Um, but when you see his actual speech, it's just as powerful. So I think he made a very quick decision that, you know, dying on the cross of that, of speaking that line was not in the best interest of what he wanted to accomplish. And so he did capitulate um, he was criticized on the left, but for capitulating and taking out the line. But in the end, I think when you see the actual speech, um, I always get shivers when I hear him warn people, if you do not listen to us now, you will listen to us when we march and, and when we come. And that was not a violent threat. You know, and that's what's so ironic about the controversy is John Lewis was always quite clear that he was speaking about nonviolent protest, and yet, you know, uh, those words were deemed as really inflammatory. So, um, Erica, for you, you know, looking at back then that kind of speech and what is going on now, the urgent argument among activists on how much to push for change in in legislative ways inside of the system and outside of the system. What do you hear, and how do you reflect on that now? Well. Um, I think they're aligned in the end game, the end result. And um, I think that um, if we're all thinking about a relay race, this is our leg of it. I love that he was considered a radical in his time um, because people like to make them out as if they're terrorists or if they're anti and they're not patriotic or they're destructive. Systems need to be destroyed so new ones can be erected. And the fact that he knows that if you keep stopping people from voting, you'll never be able to change anything, good, bad, or ugly. People should have their say. He's there to defend it. And uh, he understands that it's a cornerstone and proof of life to a strong democracy. So he's shown that he has skin in the game. He was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He's bled. He's cried. He's done all those things. And imagine all those people who were assassinated around him. He understands that it's not just the fact that you might lose a reputation or have or gain one, it's that you might lose your life. And he accepts it as part of what he owes to the beloved community that he talks about. Did you get a sense of, uh, I think what we see in the film is how he keeps going, but why? Why? I mean, people could rest on their laurels for years if they had done the things that John Lewis has. You know, I, I think that this is in his DNA, um, being an activist. I think John Lewis is recognizable to those of us who dive into problems and to who do what they can. I think he also feels, you know, when we first started making the film, um, he would say, you know, I can't keep doing this forever. You know, Don, I can't, I'm not going to do this forever. And then by the end, he said, oh, I have more work to do. There's, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the film, he speaks to a, a well-wisher and he says, I was just trying to help out. And I, I think he actually really means that. He didn't go into the movement thinking that he would become its leader. 
he went to the movement doing what he could. And I, I think that that's a great reminder for each of us. You don't have to be willing to, to take body blows for justice the way that John Lewis did, but what can you do to, to help out? You know, what is in, within your power? And each of us can ask ourselves that question. Yeah, and I also think that he's having fun, Virginia. I think the picture that was chosen for the poster, it's got just a little smile just at the tips of his edges of his mouth and he's you know taking a mugshot and when you think about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and all those mugshots they add up to you know we're going all the way we're willing to be um, jailed for this and that sort of thing and I think that when you say why did he do it great love I think you can do a lot of things out of a great love not of just dissatisfaction you know, when we showed the congressman, the, the we used that mugshot in the poster. And when we showed the congressman that picture, he said, oh, that's my favorite picture of myself, <laughs> um, which I think says so much about him. Well, you see the way that he interacts with people. One, the relationships with his staff. He's so, you know, he's so beloved by them and shows up for them in beautiful ways, which people who watch the film will learn much more about but also his sense of humor, you know, um, it always comes back to the chickens, talking with this woman at a luncheon about her chickens. And she says her chickens are fighting. He says his are nonviolent. I mean, he's there's just a sweetness. And it's no wonder the man cannot get through an airport without being mobbed by people. But one of the things I noticed is that he seems to speak with them with the same level of sort of attention and sincerity that he goes into the, you know, and sits, stands behind the pulpit and gives a speech. There is something about that. He, he, you know, he really does. Um, I, you know, we saw many, many times walking through an airport with him. People want to express their gratitude um, sometimes people get really emotional, you know, um, and he he kind of takes it all in. But he what I've seen him do time and again is give people their moment with him is he doesn't take for granted that people have approached him um, and he doesn't take for granted their appreciation. And, and I know that he really enjoys uh, those public interactions. He's really a great model of a, of a public servant in that regard. Dawn Porter there. She's director and producer of the new film, John Lewis, Good Trouble. Also with us, producer Erica Alexander. We're talking about the new film, John Lewis, Good Trouble. It's a documentary that's available for streaming on demand on Google Play, Apple TV, Amazon Prime. Well, it is not entirely adulation in the film. There is a segment about his 1986 run for Congress against Julian Bond, who had been a great friend of his. They both worked together to get people registered to vote. But some tensions developed, and we get a, a, a picture of a very ambitious John Lewis. Why was it important to reveal these other sides of the revered congressman? You know, it, people are complex, and John Lewis, his, his personality includes that complexity. Um, I wanted to show it, that interaction for a few reasons. One is I think most people have forgotten it. Um, two, I think it says something about his desire to win. I mean, if we think now about what he did and how controversial it was, it's, it's almost, you know, quaint. He challenged Julian Bond to a drug test, um, and that was seen as kind of unseemly. Um, but, you know, he, they, they didn't have many policy differences between them. 
And he saw that as an avenue to distinguish them. And it was a matter of character. Uh, So he made that choice, which he was roundly uh, criticized for. I think there's also an interesting way that we all are involved in that decision. Because while we might criticize him for making that choice, we still are eternally grateful that he is our congressman. And so I think if you ask yourself, what would you do if you thought, you were the best person for the job and you had this one area to exploit. So, you know, people are complicated, politics are complicated. And so I I thought it added a necessary level of of complexity to our understanding of of the congressman. Well, really, so much of this film is about voting rights. Uh, the, the, The key thing, the motivation that he worked for when he got into the civil rights movement and also uh, his legacy. And in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court's Shelby County versus Holder decision pretty much gutted key parts of the Voting Rights Act, freeing states to change their election laws without advanced federal approval. The film shows the parallel between voter suppression efforts in the 1960s with some of the things that have happened since that Shelby County versus Holder decision. Even here in Georgia a couple of weeks ago, people waiting five hours in the heat to vote. So what, as you're looking at the legacy of John Lewis and seeing it through his eyes, what are you seeing between the past and the present here? You know, I think it shows you can't be complacent. Um, it, it was quite demoralizing to see some of the same tactics used to suppress voter turnout um, and voters actually exercising the franchise. During the making of the film, you know, I would get dispirited. I would say, you know, Mr. Lewis, uh, this happened or that happened. And it was so interesting. You know, here is the man who was present, who owns a pen given to him by Lyndon Johnson on the signing of the Voting Rights Act. And he was not depressed. He was angry. He was motivated. He was energized. Um, but he kept making the point that we have to be vigilant and active and forward-looking about our rights. So um, I, I think what he was pointing out is a wake-up call. Um, I think that, you know, there were so many activities that happened in, you know, under the cover of secrecy that led to disenfranchisement of so many people. Um, and that is, you know, that is our challenge going forward, you know, we have been warned about the dangers to our democracy, and uh, we ignore those warnings at our own peril. Well, as you're he- you were heading into the final production phase of this, you could not have predicted coronavirus or the widespread protests in response to the death of, or sparked by uh, the death of George Floyd and many years of accumulated violence with impunity. Has your perception of the film changed as the events of 2020 have unfolded? I wouldn't say my perception has changed. I think that it is probably even more urgent now to understand the congressman's life and work, but also to understand the roots of the causes of the behavior that seeks to you know, disenfranchise or discriminate understanding that those sentiments are still quite active um, and can lead to harm is important. We have to acknowledge that there are some people who do not believe in equality 
And if we acknowledging that, facing it, discussing it, but opposing it. Um, I, I think when I started making the film, I thought we're gonna have to convince people that protest is still necessary. So I don't think that today at all. I think now um, the message that I'm leaning into of the film is it's not enough to protest. I appreciate deeply and have participated in many marches and protests, but now we need to focus on the real work of uh, strategizing and legislation. How about for you, Erica? What were you thinking, wondering about how this film was gonna hit while this movement was growing on the streets? We were certainly living in unprecedented times, not because any one of these things is happening, because they're all happening at once. Racism is about power and um, the people who control it or wanna control the narrative, um, make sure that people don't have the right to vote and exercise their, um, their voices or their, their collective voice. And I think people are seeing that Dawn's completely right that uh, here we are protesting and that's fantastic. And it's led to a lot of discussions that people are having, having and, and things that um, people are looking at for the first time in their life in a real way. But the vote is real. The vote is real. You really wanna change it? You have got to change the people that represent it. Um, otherwise we'll be back here is actually listening to an NPR station a few years ago when the man on it said, it's not that we're, uh, whether we'll have unrest, this is just a matter of when. And I remember when he said it, it really hit me like, he's right, but he was so sure. He was so sure that this is going to happen. He, he said, it's going to happen very soon. And now when I see how it's happened and that it's worldwide and we have people pushing over monuments, not only in South and the North, but um, in Europe and all over the place in Peru, they're not playing. They're like colonization, forget this, boom. We're going to rewrite the history of ourselves collectively. But if we're, while we're doing it, we need to vote because otherwise those things that maintain those types of narratives stand and we can't allow it anymore. I want to thank you both so much. Director and producer Don Porter of the new film, John Lewis, Good Trouble. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having us. And Erica Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. The film is available to watch now, both in theaters at Social Distance and on demand. We'll put a link to the movie's website at gpbnews.org. And we're going to leave you with Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around by The Roots. Coming up, a SCAD grad who went from being an intern at Viola Davis's production company to launching her own. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that conversation when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Growing up, 
Mahalia Latortue said she had three career options, doctor, lawyer, or engineer. So she started her undergraduate studies at Oakwood University in Alabama, focused on pre-law, and graduated with a passion for filmmaking. Today, she is a recent SCAD graduate who founded her own Atlanta-based production company called Anacaona Pictures, with the goal to, quote, create diverse, untold stories and provide a voice to the voiceless. And here to unpack what that means with me is Mahalia Latortue. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So why that shift from pre-law to filmmaker? What drew you to this other direction? Yeah, so um, I'm a Haitian American and part of our Haitian culture is telling these very elaborate, very crazy stories. Um, and so I come from a family of storytellers, but that wasn't a career option for me at the time. So um, when I went to undergrad, I took an elective a filmmaking course. And from that moment on, I realized this is exactly what I want to do. Um, so I switched my major to broadcast journalism because I was as close to film as I can get at that point. And then I heard about SCAD. It was only four hours from my undergrad. So I applied to that to pursue um, my master's in film and television. And from there, it just took off. <laughs> Well, SCAD has such a reputation, all these creatives from all around the world. What did that kind of exposure do to change your outlook, your goals as a filmmaker? So SCAD, having a global perspective, people from different cultures critiquing my work and then learning about their cultures as well. Um, it just helped me realize that we as America are not really being portrayed on screen the way that it is. Um, and so that's kind of what, like, it was a deciding factor for me to do this production company. And then I actually got to do something called the Hong Kong Film Initiative Program. I spent three weeks in Hong Kong filming a short film and a proof of concept for a pilot. And being immersed in the culture and the fashion, it just gave me a whole different perspective on art. And it opened up the door for me. Wow, so you've done a lot. In fact, you interned with Viola Davis's production company. But upon graduating, you launched your own production company, yes. called it Anacaona Pictures. Now, why decide to forge your own path in this industry as opposed to hitching your wagon to an existing company, especially after having so much luck? Yeah, <laughs> there was an opportunity where I could have worked for Juvi. But I was thinking to myself, do I really want to work for a company? Do I really want to spend years starting off as like an office secretary and then working my way up that ladder or anything like that? Or do I want to work with the company? Do I want them to see a script that has potential and hire me as a writer or a director or just like have general meetings with them and grow in that way? And I decided that you no, know, it might take longer and it might be harder i rather work with a company than for a company. I think I owe it to myself. I've invested in, my, in myself by going to grad school. I think I deserve a chance to prove myself because I can always go work for someone at the end of the day. But I think I owe it to me and my culture to just blossom before I basically give myself away to another company. So besides making films, the focus of the company is to support and uplift voices of women, people of color in filmmaking and the production industry. So given what you've learned about the industry, why this mission? Why did this become your central focus? So <laughs> when I was first getting into filmmaking um, and I decided I don't, I don't just want to be a director or a writer. I want to be an executive. I want to be the head of a studio. 
the biggest comment that I got was, well, have you seen the numbers? Like, do you know the percentage of people of color who are actually the head of executives? And my response to that was, who am I to like be disparaged by numbers? I owe it to my ancestors. I owe it to my family who moved from Haiti to America to pursue my dreams and make my goals come true. So with the company, I wanted to help those numbers because it truly is a numbers game. We want to highlight women and people of color. And by doing that, we want to make them the forefront of our stories and not just have them be the main characters, but also the supporting cast be of different cultures. We want to portray their cultures in a positive way. And we want to portray those characters um, as honest and respectful as possible. So that that's the mission of Anacolona. Well, and it seems like the time that this, these kind of questions are being asked about who is not just at the top of st- head of studios or head of companies, but through all of the different layers of companies in the media and in entertainment in industry. But what are some specific barriers for these groups to overcome in the film and production industry specifically? Specifically, those barriers are networks because this industry is all about who you know. But there is an easier way of circumventing that, especially nowadays. Social media has been the best resource for everyone across the board. So if there's anyone out there who's interested in getting into the film industry, I highly suggest going on Facebook and entering the different networking groups there. There's one specifically called Atlanta Film Community. There's one for Georgia Production Assistance. And people will post all the jobs, all the leads. And the more you expand your network, um, the more it'll lead to paid jobs and more opportunities. And also there are wonderful organizations For example, WIFTA, Women in Film and Television Atlanta, and they have so many different networking events. So being active and finding resources within your community will help you get ahead. My guest is Mahalia Latortoux. She is a recent SCAD graduate and founder of Anakaona Pictures, a film and television production company dedicated to supporting people of color and other underrepresented groups in the film and production industry. Okay, so in this goal to create diverse, untold stories, to provide a voice for the voiceless, what does that look like in practice? Are you making films? Are you funding films? You know, what, what are you doing for your clients? Yes. So as of right now, um, what we're trying to do is curate a writer's room. Um, We are trying to help people bring their idea from conception all the way to completion. So even just sitting down and brainstorming how to make a short film, how to make a feature film, how to make a pilot. And then we do have the resources to shoot these pilots, uh, movies or films. And then from the top level down is all people of color as well in our company because we think that it's important that our message reflects our team. Well, I'm curious for you, working with various groups from various different places like that, how you navigate the role of different kinds of diversity in the room. So, for example, is it okay for somebody who is of Mexican descent to tell or shape stories about the Asian American community or vice versa? So does that matter? How do you guide your clients or even your own team through those kind of discussions? Yeah, so I am not opposed to anyone who like is white and wants to tell a story with African-Americans. What I do suggest, 
however, and what I strongly recommend to everybody is no matter what script you're writing, I would consult a person of that group to make sure that your script is not perpetuating any stereotypes, to make sure you're accurately representing the culture and making sure that these are genuine reactions. So being able to consult with somebody from that group will bring the script a long way. And I think it kind of lessens the um, percentage of you maybe doing something that is offensive. And I think that's, that's how it should be across the board. I find it really interesting that while many in the film industry pick up and move to Los Angeles, you decided to stay put and build up your company here in Atlanta, the Yollywood or the Hollywood of the South. Why did you decide <laughs> to stay here? Yeah, so even though I loved LA, I just believed that the market was oversaturated. Um, it was oversaturated and I'll tell you a story. I was in an Uber going to my internship at Juvie and I was talking to the Uber driver and he was like, what do you wanna do? And I was like, oh, I wanna be a filmmaker. I love filmmaking. And he was like, oh, that's so awesome. I'm a filmmaker too. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. How long have you been here? 10 years. What? <laughs> that was the story for a lot of people. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I can't be here for 10 years <laughs> and not and not get ahead, especially like with my mother. She's always <laughs> like, this isn't really part of our culture, but I know you're passionate about it. So go do it, but know that I expect you to be the best. I expect you to be number one. So, so you have a lot to live up to and you oh, brought yeah. so much to it. But I wonder yeah. about, the differences in people, um, you know, in, in the culture, the way of life inside of a place. How, how is that different for you in L.A., as you imagine, or now you've experienced in yeah. Atlanta? So L.A., they have their own, like, set of rules and how things done, specifically Hollywood. Um, and I think some of those things are a little problematic. Um, and, and some of the systems are a little outdated and people are just keeping with those systems because, well, that's just how it was when I entered the industry. And that's fine in D&D, but I'm the type of person who I love to go from the ground up. I love to adjust and I love to innovate. And so I feel like in Atlanta, because the industry is relatively fresh compared to L.A., there's so much room for growth. There's so much room for flexibility. There's so much more room for collaboration between people because we're all trying to make it. We all want Georgia to be like the next Hollywood and for all the decisions to be made in Georgia so we don't have to go to LA. So I, I feel like there's this spirit in Georgia of we can collaborate, we can do this, um, let's band together and create systems that work better for us versus works better for them. All right, for somebody who doesn't have your mother, <laughs> driving forward, <laughs> but is a up and coming filmmaker or producer or somebody who wants to get into the industry, but don't necessarily have the resources or access they need, where would you recommend they start? You already talked a little bit about the Facebook and social media groups. Anything else you wanted to mention? Yeah, um, definitely this, the social media groups that I mentioned. And then you just, in this industry, everyone will tell you just do it, but no one really explains what do it is. So let me break it down for you. Go Google any, a short script, a short film, whatever, and then take your iPhone because they do shoot in 4K and HD, go out and just film 
the short film. That's the only way you're gonna do it. It doesn't matter if you get your mom or your dad or your sister or your best friend to act, maybe the acting is not gonna be good, but just having the experience of, okay, how do I want this shot set up? What message am I trying to portray? If I make a shot from this angle, what is that telling my audience? And starting with those footsteps is a really good way to start growing because then you'll start to learn more just by doing. And then you can Google different YouTube videos on um, directing styles and different shot composition and how to get really creative with your camera. Um, but utilize the resources that you have. You have a phone, go out and make the film. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Your first film is always gonna be bad. It's always gonna be atrocious. You're never gonna wanna show it, but you have to go out there and shoot. Mahalia, thank you so much for your time and that advice. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Mahalia Latortu, recent SCAD graduate, founder of Anakaona Pictures, an Atlanta-based production services company supporting underrepresented voices in the industry. And we'll put a link to her Struggle is Real podcast in our show notes for today. Before we go, I'd love to invite you to join two virtual author talks that I'm hosting next week. On Monday, author Lisa Napoli talks about her new book, Up All Night. It follows Ted Turner's risky moonshot to turn an Atlanta cable station into CNN. It is a wild, risky ride with plenty of stories of the renegade broadcaster and a scrappy team of journalists and engineers and the birth of a network that really has redefined how we consume news. You can hear the conversation for free. That's at 7 o'clock on Monday evening, July 14th. Links to join at atlantahistorycenter.com. And on Tuesday, Princeton historian Julian Zelizer on his new book, Burning Down the House. Zelizer follows Newt Gingrich's win-at-all-cost strategy to dismantle decades of Democratic rule in the U.S. House of Representatives. And Newt's rise from congressional backbencher to Speaker of the House. It is chock-a-block with stories of how Newt took down his political enemies and, as Zelizer puts it, wrote the playbook for politics as blood sport that we're living in today. That's on Tuesday, July 15th at 7. Links to join that conversation at acapellabooks.com. And there's information on both events also at gpb.org community. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.